Welcome to the Fifth Estate. They bring you the story. We bring you the truth. The Fifth Estate is the news behind the headlines, holding those in power in check. And now, with the real story, here's Cameron Blewett. Good evening, Victoria, for this, what are we on, episode 57 of the Fifth Estate Podcast. Uh, kicking this episode off today, I want to talk about something that I heard uh, last week on a US podcast called uh, The President's Daily Brief. Uh, it's a podcast uh, with Brian Dean Wright, now he's an uh, ex-CIA uh, officer or something like that. Uh, even though it's it, t- it tends to be American in focus, uh, I think it is well worth listening to, uh, just to get an idea of what's happening in other parts of the world that uh, this guy feels is relevant to uh, you know to, to to his US listeners. But anyway, uh, something that he did raise about that he was talking about funding for the Ukraine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then mentioned something else that had happened in Canada and I just want to play that here and then have a bit of a chat afterwards. Official news out of Ukraine that you probably didn't hear because the governments of Canada and the United States would prefer that you not. So over the weekend there were reports in Canada and the United States that quietly mentioned that Canadian special forces were in Ukraine on Ukrainian soil embedded with and training local forces. Now, in response to those media leaks, Canada's chief of the defense staff, General Wayne Eyer, he made clear that he was not happy. So here's what he said. Quote, we are never going to talk about discrete or sensitive special operations or confirm or deny them. But if it were true, it would put our troops at risk. And why would anyone deliberately want to put Canadian troops at risk? End quote. Well, folks, I'm going to translate that for you. Canadian boots are on the ground in Ukraine, not just in neighboring countries like Poland. They are inside Ukraine. And as I have shared with you before, U.S. Special Forces are on the ground there, too, inside Ukraine. But that's not what the politicians in Ottawa or Washington, D.C. have told their citizens. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and especially Joe Biden have said repeatedly there will be no boots on the ground. Well, folks, that is a lie. It has absolutely happened. Now, it's, okay, whilst it is, you know, focused on the US and Canada, we do have to ask the question, if we've sent that many, uh, you know, how much money we've sent, we've sent, what is it, nearly a billion dollars or something like that in aid, um, actually, uh, apologies if I've got that figure. Anyway, who cares? Um, We've sent, you know, Bushmasters over and and who knows how much other stuff over there are our SAS troops over there as well. Now, I can't imagine if there's US troops over there and there's Canadian troops over there, there there wouldn't be Australian troops over there. So I think this needs to, the the question does need to be asked of the, uh, you know, Albanese government, uh, are Australian troops over there? If they are, what's the plan to have a, uh, a withdrawal and what's going to happen when we start seeing soldiers come back in body bags? Now, to be perfectly clear, I don't want to see any troops anyway. Uh, I think that we need to, as a country, we need to get away from getting into all these conflicts. Now, 
what is happening in the Ukraine to the civilian population over there is something that is is despicable. Uh, it is not something that should be tolerated by the international community, whether we should be uh, handing uh, arms and everything like that over there is a different question. Uh, there's also something in, in a previous episode of, of this uh, President's Daily Briefing, he was talking about uh, all the money uh, that the US has sent over there and there's no audit trail. And the, what they mean by that is that there's no guarantee that the arms and everything like that that is sent over there is used there in that conflict and it's not sold on the black market somewhere else. So uh, for those who came in late, and admittedly I did too, um, you know, I, I knew Ukraine was somewhere over there and, and a little bit about it. I didn't realise that the uh, levels of uh, corruption were as bad as what they are. Uh, I also didn't realise that... Uh, from what I have been able to discover and to find out is that there was a very big, or there probably still is, a very big uh, black market in the weapons trade. So that's the thing. We're sending Bushmasters over there and who knows what other ammunition and arms, etc., etc., over there. And, you know, do we know, can we guarantee that they're being used in that conflict and that they're not going to be sent somewhere else to a higher bidder for that? So... Uh, but, you know, th- there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on about that and, you know, I'm not making, uh, uh, you know, taking sides on everything like that. The only sides that I will be taking is the civilian population. Uh, I think that there's a whole lot of stuff going on over there that we're not being told the full picture of because it's, yeah, so many things that don't make sense about it, uh, especially, you know, we were told from the start, oh, you, you know, it, it wouldn't be a, um, a, a long invasion. It would be short because the, the Russian military would be um, overrun by whatever time or they'd run out of this or run out of that. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So um, anyway, going back to back to the, the original thing that I was talking about is that we do need to start putting pressure on uh, Albanese and the defence minister, whoever that is. Uh, I know the assistant minister is... Um, the the assistant the assistant minister for defence is also the assistant minister for the republic, uh, for that. So I think we need to start putting pressure on them, and the corrupt corporate press needs to start asking questions every day. Where are the arms going? Or are there troops over there? And everything like that. Training. Are they in neighbouring areas, or are they in you know are are there uh, Australian boots on the ground in the Ukraine? So, yes, I, I think it is something that we do need to start asking. So, anyway, uh, enough on that one for this episode. Uh, now, speaking of that, uh, or sort of, sort of speaking of that, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, kerfuffle going around over allegations that former Premier, Premier former Prime Minister uh, Scott Morrison uh, became was appointed uh, as a, a minister or was he appointed as a minister or he was appointed to administer the relevant portfolio. So anyway, um, the, the, the corrupt corporate press is claiming that he was sworn in when the Governor-General has turned around and said he wasn't sworn in, he was appointed a, uh, to administer the portfolios. Now, administering the portfolio is different to being a sworn minister. Now, 
What the technicalities are, I'm not sure because that would depend on the legislation at the time and the powers that are uh, governed by that and whether uh, the relevant legislation says that the particular decision-making criteria is passed or, or is made by the, uh, the the sworn minister themselves. So if it's only administration, then it's something that, uh, you know, whether it's um, the, the, the relevant minister or whether it's uh, the SCOMO himself or it could even be an assistant minister or someone that's filling in, temporary minister or whatever they call them, uh, acting minister and all that sort of stuff. So uh, this is the thing. And the other thing too is that, so, I mean, like, Really, what's the big deal if the Prime Minister took on a couple of other portfolios? Because it's the thing, okay, so he's sworn in as Prime Minister. Now, remember, the office of Prime Minister is only as, as a Minister of State of the Commonwealth. That's not some official title or anything like that because the, the Prime Minister is only there through convention, not constitution. So we need to get that clear. So in the big scheme of things, the... Uh, Authority that the Prime Minister has under the Australian Constitution is that as any other minister. So it's all the same. It just depends on what legislation uh, gives the minister whatever particular power. Uh, yes, the Prime Minister does have his own little uh, portfolio as a Prime Minister and Cabinet or something like that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's anything that... Uh, because he's sworn in as a Prime Minister would exclude him from doing another ministerial role. Now, as the, the Governor-General has come out and said that what he was involved in with the uh, former Prime Minister didn't conflict the Constitution in any way and if you have a look at uh, the the ministerial makeup of even the, the uh, Albanese uh, soon-to-be regime, there's multiple... Uh, there's, there's individual ministers having multiple portfolios. So, you know, a, a sworn minister having a, you know, different portfolios, for example, you know, um, minister for employment, minister for something else, you know, it's the same person. Uh, you know, way back when uh, Michaela Cash and, and Porter were, at, I think Porter was the AG and then minister for industrial relations or something like that. Uh, and then it was given to Michaela Cash and she was uh, Minister for IR and then I think Jobs Minister or something like that as well. Uh, so, you know, th there's no big uh, drama on that part. And by the other side of, of the, the, the coin, uh, if he wasn't sworn in as a minister and it was only appointed as allowed under the relevant legislation or regulations, then what's a big deal either? Uh, so, you know, it, it's just interesting that there's so many people jumping up and down about, oh, my gosh, Scott Morrison had a shadow government and he was going to subvert democracy or, or whatever. And yet, really, there's not a peep of them about what and the, the, the actual overt stuff that Supreme Leader Andrews has done. And once again, to point out to these people that Australia is not a democracy, we're a constitutional monarchy with representative government. That does not make us a democracy. And it, it, to, to be honestly perfectly simple here, a democracy is where everyone gets involved and makes decisions on everything. We do not have that. We have a uh, representative government where we uh, elect 
certain people in to allegedly represent us in Parliament, uh, and then from there we have Parliament that passes laws and is approved by or disapproved or disallowed or rejected by the monarch and their representative. In the case of the federal government, it's that Governor-General. So this is the thing I just wish people would get away get away from saying, oh, you know what, Australia's a democracy. We're not. If we were a democracy, we'd be getting involved in every bloody thing that's going on and that is something that we do not want to see. That is something that we do not want to have happen because it is just going to be an absolute shambles. Uh, so, yes, now... Uh, speaking of, you know, claims of, of democracy and uh, things going wrong there or uh, misdefining mis- or lack not understanding uh, what's going on, uh, there was two interesting articles in today's uh, Herald Sun. One was a column by Andrew Bolt and the other was a column by Susie O'Brien. Now, Susie O'Brien's starts with, Vile anti-vax protests at Melbourne hospitals must never happen again. And with a subheading of, The government must act swiftly on the ragtag mob of pests who thought nothing of skewering health workers and terrifying sick kids. Now, I'll leave that one for a minute. But I want to go over to Andrew Bolt's one. Andrew Bolt's one was, War on free speech is now waged everywhere. The horror attack on author Salman, Sir Salman Rushdie highlights that the war on free speech is now waged everywhere. Now, for those who came in late, uh, someone, Sir Salman Rushdie was out uh, giving a talk or something like that. Where was it? Uh, New York. Uh, he was on stage and then someone jumped up on stage and um, attacked him, uh, I think stabbed him a couple of times and uh, there was... Uh, the initial reports were saying that he'd been stabbed in the neck and he might lose his eye and all that sort of stuff. So uh, there's that. So, <coughs> oh, pardon me. Uh, we've got Andrew Bolt saying the war on free speech is now waged everywhere and yet the very same paper is turning around and Susie O'Brien is saying that these people cannot exercise their um, what people like to believe is a right to free speech. Now, something that... I do want to read, um, might read a little bit of this one. So the article starts with, anti-vax protesters in Victoria have just reached an all-time new low. First, they urinated on the Shrine of Remembrance. Then they wheeled gallows onto the steps of Parliament House. And on the weekend, they blockaded streets outside the Royal Children's Hospital, another sacred site. This ragtag mob of professional pests thought nothing of obstructing exhausted healthcare workers and terrifying sick kids and their family. Now, uh, I'm sorry, I'll continue a bit more because I've just realised this bit. Kids receiving chemo turned up for treatment to find their path blocked by scumbags carrying signs telling them they got sick because of COVID-19 vaccines. What a disgrace. The government must act swiftly in response. Exclusion zones of up to 150 metres around hospitals are urgently needed to protect patients and healthcare workers from the public menace of such protests. We do it for abortion clinics. Why not healthcare settings? While peaceful protests should be allowed, there was nothing peaceful about the weekend scenes. 
Protesters screamed abuse and taunts over loudspeakers and held signs that read, these bastard MPs are killing our lovely kids and vaxxing our kids is child abuse. The government should put as much effort into excluding these vile vermin as they did patrolling streets and slapping fines on innocent people taking their kids to playgrounds during lockdown. These days, people face higher fines for vegetation vandalism or threatening endangered species than stopping vulnerable kids accessing healthcare. Perhaps the government could enact its own pandemic powers which would see them facing two years in jail or a $90,500 fine for breaking public health orders. Then uh, that would make them think twice about abusing, obstructing not only patients and their families but the staff who have toiled for more than two years now to keep everyone else safe. The same groups have been responsible for attacks on GPs who supported vaccine trials. And anyway, I'm not going to go any further because I think this is just a bullshit. Um, Actually, sorry, there's just so many bits in this article where I think I'll stop it. It's time our freedom was prioritised over their right to obstruct, harangue, abuse and vilify innocent people going to work or taking their kids to hospital on a weekend. Now, it's... First of all, it's the thing. You know, I've changed my thinking on free speech. Um, I don't think free speech speech exists. I my thoughts are on what we need to do is enshrine private property rights and move that more into the contract that you take out with someone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's say you want to hire. Town Square, you want to go and hire a meeting room, you have a contract with that person and you can say whatever you want in there because it's within the terms of that contract and same as printed material, etc., etc. So um, this is the thing. When we start talking about free speech, where does, you know, yes, you can go out and talk in public because that's your spot. That's, you you know, you're on your block of land, you can talk about whatever you want or you're um, somewhere that you can talk about whatever. Uh, for that so yeah it's the thing Um, I don't agree with her views because I think that this Susie O'Brien is probably one of the the sellouts that is uh, going to be pushing the the crap that has been done over the last two years and uh, having a uh, pretend opposition to the mandates and regimes and everything like that uh, for that. So, but then you know about these people protesting out of the out the front of the hospital. Well, you know what you've you've got to allow those rights to appear uh, absolutely. You can't just pick and choose what messages you will allow people to say. And um, you know it, it's the thing is that we've seen mostly peaceful protests elsewhere. Uh, and no one said anything. Uh, do we really want a uh, militarised response to that? And let's make it clear, it's not a police response, it's a militarised response. You have a look at the way uh, the Victorian police force operates, uh, its tactics, its weapons, everything like that. It is militarised, So, which, you know, I do believe is unconstitutional. Um, for that so yeah it, it, it's the thing so I mean it's the thing you, you can't have one uh, actually you know you, you can but it points out a hypocritical uh, view of the paper to turn around and say that there's an attack on free speech and then have the 
paper promoting uh, another columnist saying that, you know, they want free speech suppressed. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things that either applies evenly across the board to everyone or it doesn't. And if you want to stifle their ability to say that, well, then we have to stifle the government's ability to do it. And let's make it clear is that as previous episodes uh, with Damien Richardson uh, where we talked about the incident of the allegation of urination on the shrine, on the grounds of the Shrine of the Remembrance, uh, Shrine of Remembrance, it was actually a police horse. It wasn't one of the protesters that were there. So for Ms O'Brien to push that fake news again, it just shows you uh, how how desperate their position is. And you know what? It's it's a thing. Gallows. Okay, so they've wheeled gallows around. Whoop-de-doo. You know, isn't that an expression of speech as well? Um, yes, this person had, um, you know, views that aren't in line with uh, the rest of the, you know, Victorian community. Though that doesn't, Does that mean that they shouldn't be held? or they shouldn't be allowed to say it. I mean, they weren't grabbing people off the street. They didn't break into parliament and put someone in those uh, in those gallows. And if you have a look at it, all it is is a crudely drawn, um, tied, um, for want of a better term, hangman, hangman's noose, and made crudely tied it, the not to just woeful, uh, on a bit of 4B2 um and just tied around there so you know they'd be lucky to hold a six pack without breaking the bit of wood uh so you know what is it yeah so but you know this is the thing um as i said you have to either allow speech freely across the board to everyone or you can't allow it with to anyone and i don't know about you i would rather live in a world where someone may say something or has the the quote-unquote freedom to say something that might upset me or annoy me rather than living in a society where no one can say anything. Uh, And you know what? I don't know, it's been done to death, but you know what? If you've got those views where people should just shut up and and toe the party line, well, I'm sure there's a, a couple of places around the world where you can go to where those governments have those views. Uh, so yes, as I said, yep, I think it's just something that, you know, it's, it's another distraction. I mean, if you have a look at, at the, the Pfizer documents and the information that's coming out, uh, about, you know, the, the jabs and the survivability of the Wu flu and everything like that. Uh, it, you know, it does call into question the uh, ability of the medical regime to stand up to it. And, you know, remember, the medical regime are the ones that have turned around and, and you know, played by APRA's um, and ATAGI's guidelines in uh, not subscribing uh, particular other medications as well as pushing the series of therapeutics. Well, at the time it was one therapeutic and then it became two, then it became three, and now it's four. So this is the thing from that the medical profession does have a lot to answer for. Um, 
So, yeah. Now, actually, you're still talking about the medical profession and, and having lots to answer for. Um, the other day I heard a podcast by Steve Dace and I can't remember the guy's now, the guy's name. Uh, but they they've got a book that is going to be that being published uh, next year. Uh, it's about um, on, let's find out who it is. Daniel Horowitz. Okay, Daniel Horowitz and Steve Dace. Uh, they've got a book published it next year, which I think is called. From memory, the rise of the Fourth Reich, or something like that. Um, now, what they're pushing for is, and we've seen a lot of people talk about it during the lockdowns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, was uh, a series of Nuremberg 2.0 trials, and they want Nuremberg-style punishments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I actually b- before we go there, okay, now. You know, these people may say that they want that, but if you have a look that all what has happened around the world has been a worldwide, uh, I won't say response, I would say it's been a coordinated uh, effort to push the jabs and to push lockdowns and to push the, the face diapers and social distancing and everything like that. So... Where would you find a place that is impartial enough to be able to have, you know, for want of a better term, the the Nuremberg trials? Uh, I don't think the the International Court would be uh, impartial enough to be able to hear them without uh, having a finding of not guilty or anything like that. Uh, for that, so there's that, and you know, this this goes by the same thing of, of the same talk about. Uh, royal commissions and and uh, public inquiries into the response out here in Australia. Now, what good would a royal commission do when the terms of reference for the royal commission could be that narrow that restricts its ability to uh, actively look into the response to this? Uh, we saw that with the Coates Royal Commission is that even though the terms of reference did allow the uh, commissioner to make certain inquiries. The commissioner didn't even consider making those inquiries until uh, Peter Cradlin turned around and said, well, did you ask for the phone records? And in which case the, the, the commissioner thought, oh, Commissioner Coates thought, oh, I better go and ask for the phone records. They didn't do that right from the start. So going back to that thing is that, okay, we have a Royal Commission out here, then what? Uh, then the Royal Commission recommends that people get tried, Okay. Tried for what? Is there any laws on the books that would make it a criminal offence for the politicians to do what they did? Uh, you know what? I don't think that there is. Um, then from that aspect, I mean, because all they could do is, oh, you know, I had the reasonable belief that I was doing the right thing and then there's that. So, you know, unless you can prove or you've got, for example, Supreme Leader Andrews or Slugger on tape somewhere, you know, recorded. Um, ideally, it would have to be a um, hidden camera recording, you know, conspiring to get the mandates because they're getting kickbacks from X, Y, Z uh, for that. But then also by the other side of the coin too is that 
would that recording be uh, accepted in courts or would they turn around and say, oh, no, it's a deep fake. You know, Slugger and Supreme Leader Andrews never said that. They weren't in the same place together because their diary entries say that, no, they were in any other part of the state uh, for that. So, uh, you know, it, it's that. So, you know, Royal Commission is pointless. Same as the Nuremberg uh, trials now. Going along with that, then how do you find someone guilty considering that you wouldn't be able to find an impartial judge? You wouldn't be able to find... Um, you know, enough judges to, to have a bench. Um, I'm not sure whether those trials would be jury trials or anything like that. And then, um, you know, to have uh, Nuremberg-type punishments, which is ultimately executions. Now, I completely disagree with it uh, because it, it, it's that, you know, I don't think that we should be um, putting people up against walls or swinging them from trees or anything like that uh, because that's not what modern societies do. Um, incarcerate them, yes, but then by the same co- same token, that's going to cost us money. Uh, so how do we do that? You know what, we could... Um, you know, seize the funds as a proceeds of crime. And, you know, for example, uh, Supreme Leader Andrews, uh, you know what, he was working from home when he, (coughs) cough, cough, fell down the stairs. Um, So you could do that. He was working from home to create directions or whatever. I mean, his wife has posted things on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever the hell he was on. Uh, he's working from home, so there you go, confiscate the home as proceeds of crime. Um, you know, take away his uh, taxpayer, taxpayer, taxpayer-funded uh, pension and superannuation, take that away, take the house off, take the home off him. Um, whatever kickbacks his family have received, take them as well because they never um, expressed opposition to his tactics and what he was doing. So then that, and then that money that is recovered there could be used to uh, fund his incarceration. Uh, you know what? Build a specific prison somewhere for him, Slugger, uh, Foley, and all these other idiots who uh, pushed this crap onto us for the last two years um, and all that. Just build one specifically for them. And then when the time comes that they're no longer in that, um, have that as a permanent memorial or um, a permanent reminder to genuinely never let it happen again. Uh, and, and this is the thing, you know, Nuremberg was supposedly, and the Nuremberg Code was there to uh, ensure that it didn't happen again uh, for that. So, yeah, it, it, it's the thing. You know, I, I don't agree with Nuremberg 2.0 and, and Nuremberg trials because, you know, what's the point? Um I doubt that even if we had any sort of criminal trial here uh, that, you know, they would be able to say that they had a fair trial because, you know what, you'd either be someone that is um, pro-jab, in which case you're going to say that they didn't do anything wrong, or you're going to be someone that either didn't take the series of therapeutics or was coerced into a series of therapeutics and you've got that animosity towards the relevant person that will be in the 
um, not in the witness box, uh, the, the accused. So there's that I do, I, I think that there needs to be, they need to be held accountable for those decisions and it can't be just at the ballot box because they will, you know, if Supreme Leader Andrews loses the seat of Mulgrave, well then he gets to have his little pension and his private, you know, his, his taxpayer-funded uh, security and who knows what else for however long he wants it. Uh, so, you know, there, there should be some accountability for the decisions that he's made and it should have, you know, the it, it shouldn't be that, oh, I, I had the reasonable belief that this because the legislation said this. Well, you know what, stuff the legislation, you know, can you hand on your – actually, no, he probably could because he's – um, that much of a of a of a modern day Marxist or modern day fascist. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a thing. It's going to be tricky. How do we hold them to account for what's being you know what they've done? You know, you can't turn around and say, well, they're going to have to answer for it once they meet their maker or shuffle off this mortal coil. Well, most of these people don't believe in any other deities apart from themselves or Klaus. And Klaus isn't going to be upset that, you know, something happened because he's done, you know, they've done his bidding right from, from day one. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's, it's one of those things, what do we do? How do you do it? Um, I don't think that the legal profession is competent enough to uh, be able to defend or even prosecute uh, those matters. Uh, I don't even think that the legal profession is competent enough to be able to inquire into those matters because, you know, we, we've seen uh, what's happened with the uh, very, for want of a better term, half-assed cases that have made it to the courts uh, trying to oppose those decisions. Now, there have there is an interesting one going through VCAT that I believe that the uh, decisions were good, uh, like the, 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 not the decisions, the um, submissions were good uh, from the applicant and that will be interesting to see how the respondent uh, responds to those, uh, th- that submission and then what the tribunal decides with regards to that. Now, if that matter gets up in the tribunal, I think that there's going to be a lot of um, scurrying about by those in the Department of Health to reach some sort of out-of-court settlements and get everything tied up in deeds, etc., etc. Uh, so, yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting there. Um, so what else is there? The Labor Party's got a job summit coming up. They're talking about the papers were saying that they need to focus on childcare. I think that is the wrong thing that they need to be focusing on. I think the job summit needs to be done in a way that reduces the cost of living to a point where uh, both parents or you do not need to have a dual income into a household to be able to survive. So we need to manage the thing that way. So one, let's say the standard family with, with two parents, where one parent can stay home and one parent can go back to work. We, we need to get away from these, this obsession with families having both parents working just to make ends meet because that's not doing their kids any good because they're going in into uh, government-sponsored childcare, whether it's the free kindy or whether it's schools. 
etc., uh, etc., et and to be indoctrinated by the, the the crap that these schools are pushing out uh, for that. So, you know, it, it's it's the wrong focus for uh, the the job summit. They shouldn't be focusing on that. They should be focusing on reducing the cost of living. How do we improve jobs where it is that uh, we don't need both parents working where one person can stay home uh, for that. And I really don't care which parent stays home as long as there's someone from the family looking after the children rather than having, you know, you, you work and you have to go to work and then if you're putting your kids in childcare, then obviously if both parents are working, you're probably going to be above any brackets that are there for funding for childcare so you know what you may be putting all your money into childcare so you can work and and it's just one of those big uh, vicious circles there so uh, I think you know improving cost of living should be something that should be the first focus of uh, any job summit so yes Um, and then you know you reduce cost of living expenses so then it doesn't move away from, as I said, having both parents in the workforce, so then that creates other vacancies for other people to fill. So whether it's, uh, you know, new workers filling uh, entry-level jobs and then people get, you know, more experienced and have developed their skills so then they can move into other roles as well. So, uh, you know, there's that. Um, So, yeah... I, I just think, yeah, it, it's we've got the wrong focus and, yeah, it's it's not one that is going to be beneficial to society. Um, so, yeah, and what else? I think that's about all for today. I'm, I'm, I was going to talk about the for and against the abolition of the ABCC. But you know what? I might leave that for another day um, because... I don't know, I think it's the mere fact is that the courts have found the CFMEU uh, guilty on any number of uh, claims that the ABCC has taken to court, which just shows you that the ABCC does need to be there uh, for that. So, yeah, I might just leave it there. Um Oh no! Okay, so this is um, this is both sides having their uh, their rant and all that sort of stuff. Um, See, so I might talk about that one tomorrow or in the next episode. So, anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, look forward to having you join me on the next one, and hopefully that's it out um, around about the same time tomorrow. So, until then, thanks for listening, and bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fifth Estate, the news behind the headlines. Until the next episode of The Fifth Estate releases, we'd love for you to leave a review wherever you go to for quality podcasts. And we'll keep holding those in power in check.